This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Well, every week, I get a notification on my phone that tells me how much time I've spent on my phone. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. It's called screen time. And every week it shows me how much time I've spent on each app or each website. It also even compares my average from this week to the week prior. And so it gives me some indication of where I'm at, how much time I've been spending on this device. And it's helpful for me to know that because it shows me, oh, wow, maybe I should be less on my phone. However, not too long ago, one of my friends told me that there's something called downtime. I was like, oh, what is that? You can set limits on your phone. I was like, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's helpful. I mean, you could ignore it if you want, but the point is so that there's some type of control there. But time is very valuable to us. We tend to prioritize what we, what we truly value. And for Christians, we wonder or think about, what is my time like that's devoted to God? Uh, one of the ways to see that is our devotion to God's church. Our, our question today, what if I don't feel like going to church, assumes that I don't want to go to church. There's a problem there. So I want to look at this question uh, through three movements or ideas and seek to answer this question uh, based on God's word. Because anyone who stands up here, anyone you listen to, must be uh, committed to the authority of God's word. Not man's opinion. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the problem, the privilege, and the purpose. The problem, privilege, and purpose. First, the problem. I think we first have to grow in our ecclesiology. Ecclesiology means study of the church. Now, I think it's fascinating to study church polity and church government because that has massive implications for how we look at the church. And so we first need to define what the church is. Ephesians 2 gives us a glimpse of this. Right now, we are in a church building. Uh, this church building can move and go someplace else. But the church is a people, specifically the people of God. And Ephesians 2 points this out to us. 
Ephesians 2 and verse 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In this passage, Paul is referring to how Jews and Gentiles who were once far apart have now been brought near to Christ and now form one new man. It's reconciliation. And these people then are saints Members of the same household. Throughout the scriptures, you'll see these images of the church. We have household. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, the very important piece that holds all, all the, the whole building together. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In the Old Testament spoke much about the temple a physical building that the Israelites had to construct, and this is where God's glory dwelt. But the temple was a picture. This is why in John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and three days later, it will rise again. And the Jews are confused. They're like, it it took us this long to, to build this. How can you destroy it? And three days later, it rises again. And John tells us Jesus was speaking about his body. Jesus' body is a temple. The church is a temple of God where God dwells by his spirit. And so the church is a people. But these people gather together. That's really important. These people assemble see this in Acts chapter 2, in verse 42. If you want to grow in your understanding of, of what the church is, read the book of Acts. It is so helpful in our understanding of what the church is. And we actually see this pattern in Acts. Here's the pattern. The gospel is preached. It's the message of salvation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is preached. The spirit then convicts hearts, makes dead men alive in Christ. People put their faith and trust in Jesus, and then they are baptized into a local church where they partake in the Lord's Supper and devote themselves to the preaching of God's word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, these people who have just been converted or regenerated or born again or saved, these people then gather together and they devote themselves to God's word, to fellowship to eating meals together, to the Lord's Supper, to prayer, and they do this together. 
amazing because Peter preached this message and about 3,000 were added that day. There's an accounting going on here. 3,000 added to that church there. So how is it that people can go from devoting themselves to meeting together, to community, to not gathering? Is this only something we see in 2021 or 2020? No, actually. This was a problem even back then. That's why the author of Hebrews picked up on this. If you've never read the the letter of Hebrews, I encourage you to read it. If you want to understand how the New Testament authors interpret and understand the Old Testament, read Hebrews. Because the author tells us that Jesus is superior than the angels. He's superior than Joshua. He's superior than Moses. He is the true high priest who has covered our sin. And if you've already read Hebrews, read it again. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says this in verse 24. And let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here the author is trying to encourage the Christians in the midst of persecution that they should encourage one another. That they should gather and assemble together as the body of Christ. And he tells us that there are some who have made it a habit not to gather. There are some who have neglected gathering with one another. Uh, Perhaps for them, it's because of persecution. They are fearful that because I bear the name of Christ, my life might be taken away from me. My family might be taken away from me. But there are many other reasons why people neglect gathering with God's people. Perhaps they're tired. Had a long week at work. I even worked Saturday and did some overtime. Sunday's the only day that I can sleep in, that I can rest. Or perhaps they're just lazy. They don't want to get up. 9 a.m., that's too early. That's too much of a hassle. It's inconvenient for me. Perhaps there's shame. Perhaps because of their own sin, they don't want to spend time with God's people because they know that it's going to come up in conversation. Or perhaps the sin of others and their family members. My child or my spouse has been rebellious and I don't want to spend time with God's people. There's a sense of of shame and guilt there. Or perhaps their hearts are hardened. Their sin has deceived them. They've been rebellious, indulging in their own sinful desires. Why even 
go to church. What's the point? Perhaps it's priorities. Super Bowls today. I got to get ready. Got to cook. Got to get those wings. I can't. I can't. I can't neglect that and and go to church. That's going to be too much time. Perhaps other sports. My kids are in sports. It's Sunday morning, so I have to take them to their game. Perhaps fear. Right? There's a pandemic. I don't want to gather. It's too risky. Or perhaps it's convenient for you to sit home and just turn on the TV and watch church. And I think this last year has really shown us or forced us to think about what the church is. Gathering with God's people is essential for Christians. So how is it that people can go from seeing this as a problem? You know, I don't don't feel like going to church. I don't want to go to church. How, how can that change? Well, I think one of the ways is starting to see it as a privilege. Starting to see the gathering of God's people as a privilege. You know, it's really important for us to understand just how beautiful it is to gather with the saints. But you ever ask the question, how is it that I got here today? And I'm not talking about your car or if you walked. If you walked, that's pretty amazing. (laughs) But how is it that I got here? Well, there's, there's this big story in the scriptures where God the Father planned with God the Son that he was going to redeem a people for himself. That before the world was even created, before Alliance Bible Church even existed, that God was going to save his people from their sin. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the elders of the church. The elders are the the shepherds, the overseers, the pastors of the church. And he's trying to exhort and encourage them because he knows that after he leaves, there are going to be wolves that arise from the church to deceive And pull many away from Christ. And so it's important that we stand on God's word. And so Paul says this in verse 28 to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
And so so the elders, elders care for the church. We have to remember what's important is that that last line, which he obtained with his own blood. Christ has purchased you. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus has bought you with his own blood. That is an amazing privilege. This good shepherd has laid down his life for you. He has endured much hostility from sinful men to bring honor to God and to save you. You were bought with a price, a price. And it was the blood of Christ. You know, the Old Testament is filled with various types or pictures, images of Jesus. If you remember the story of Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. He's going to bless him. All the nations will be blessed through him. He's going to have a lot of kids. But here's the problem. Abraham was old. His wife was old, and on top of that, she was barren, meaning she couldn't have any kids. So how is this going to happen? It's an act of God. So after years and years and years and years of waiting, God opened up Sarah's womb, and she had Isaac. But do you remember what happens in the next chapter God says, take your son Isaac, whom you love, your only son whom you love, and go sacrifice him. Abraham gets up, take Isaac with him, makes an altar. Isaac says, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide He ties up his own son to the altar, takes a knife. He's about to kill his own son. And God says, stop. Now I know that you trust me, that you fear me. And so Isaac was spared. But this was not the case with Christ. Christ went up to the altar He's hung on a cross, nails in his hands, a crown of thorns jammed unto his head. And Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 8. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his son. Christ was sacrificed for you. Christ died not for us to neglect gathering, but so that we can gather with one another. 
so that we can assemble as the body of Christ. Do you know how much Christ is committed to you? I think it's fascinating that throughout the scriptures, we are reminded of the beauty of the good shepherd. So if Christ is so committed to you, are you committed to the one that he values and delights in? And that's his church. You know, when a man loves a woman or likes a lady, he's interested in getting to know her and spend time with her, starts taking her out, ask her questions, find out, maybe this is the one that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And so they start dating or courting. And they really like one another. But even though they are dating, there is not a formalized commitment yet. And I know some guys are fearful of commitment. But how is it that their relationship can be solidified? Well, he finds out her ring size, sometimes in a sneaky way, sometimes more obvious. He goes to the jewelry store, he looks for a ring, he purchases a ring, he sets up the whole engagement, tells her how much he loves her and wants to spend the rest of his life with her, gets down on one knee, and he proposes. That's an engagement. But there's still one more step. They have to get married. And so they plan. The day comes. They stand before the preacher, their friends and family, and God. And they make a covenant before God, before their family and friends. And it says this, I am committed to you alone. So when you get married, you are committed to that person. And that excludes any other person. And what's amazing is that Christ is committed to his bride, which is the church. But this actually takes a form for the body of Christ to be committed to one another. This is what's known as church membership. When the Christians were baptized, they were baptized into a local church and then committed to one another. And of course, there's times where you have to move for jobs or kids, family. But the point is then that you will then commit yourself to another local church. So we have to ask the question, does Jesus have absolute priority in our lives? If he does, then we will be committed to gathering 
with one another. It's amazing because our love for one another grows over time. I love being here and I love you all. It's because we are united to Jesus. And we have to look at then, what's the purpose of us gathering then? What is the purpose of us gathering? Now it's important there, I've mentioned that there are various metaphors and images throughout the scripture pertaining to the church. One of those is the, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church, the, the new covenant community. And there's a head. And I, I just want to point out that although we, we live in America and we have a religious freedom, First Amendment, we have to remember that that's not something the government gave to us. The government did not give us the right to worship. Christ is the head of the church. He is the king. So he has given us the right to worship and to assemble with one another. And so that's the purpose that we gather is actually to worship through singing, through prayers, through the preaching of God's word, through the Lord's Supper and baptism, through fellowship. Do you know why we gather on Sunday mornings or Sundays in general? It's because on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. And so John picks this up in Revelation and he says, the Lord's day. Christ rose from the grave on the first day of the week on Sunday and the Christians started to gather on Sunday to worship him. So every Sunday is Easter. Did you know that kids? Every Sunday is Easter. It's resurrection Sunday. And that's why we gather. It's amazing because God uses the gathering of his people to grow us. You ever ask the question, how is it that I can grow as a Christian? I'm really struggling or having a difficult time. How is it that I can pursue Christ? Because this is challenging. Well, God uses the gathering, the assembling of God's people to grow us. It's a means of grace. Sitting under the preaching of God's word. Singing together and loudly. Praying, fellowshipping, encouraging one another. That's how we grow. And think about this, parents. Do your kids see a commitment from you to the local church? whether that you're a member here or at another local church, do your kids see a commitment to the local body? 
Think about this. There are 52 Sundays in a year, give or take. What would it be like to expose your kids, your family, to committing to 52 Sundays out of the year? If you're doing the math, that's every Sunday. (laughs) Now, I know that sometimes we get sick, we're ill, that's okay, stay home, that's fine. But think about this. From the time a child is born to the age of 18, there are 936 Sundays. Think about that for your child. 936 Sundays of hearing God's word preached of singing songs together, of praying together, of fellowshipping together, of encouraging and rebuking one another. That is so valuable for the life of your kids. And even if you're like, man, my kids, they're on their phone, they're not listening, bring them anyway. God's word is so powerful that he changes hearts. And it's not because your child or you are receptive. That's how powerful the gospel is. So even when you go on vacation, and some of you are probably thinking, today would have been a nice day to be in Florida, somewhere warm, Well, even when you go on vacation, look for a local church to gather with on Sunday. If you want help with that, I'd love to help you find a church to do that. Paul uses the imagery of the body to point out something really important for us in 1 Corinthians. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that there's a lot of, uh, there are various issues in the church. And Paul is writing this letter to correct and rebuke. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is addressing how these people are gathering, in a sense, for the Lord's Supper, but it's not really for the Lord's Supper. There are people who are getting drunk, people who are disregarding the the rest of the, the body, And he's telling them, some of you have even died because of how you have been forsaking and neglecting one another. And so in chapter 12, he starts to speak about spiritual gifts. And perhaps you really want to hear a sermon on spiritual gifts that's coming, so it's not right now. But it's amazing. Paul speaks about spiritual gifts and says that there are a variety of spiritual gifts, And then continues his thought here to speak about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul's emphasizing 
the unity in the body of Christ. That although there are, are various members, we are one in Christ. We have been baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. So regardless of ethnicity, regardless of economic status, we are all one in Christ. And why is this important? Because perhaps there are some in the church who are feeling insignificant. We see this in verse 14 and following. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So perhaps some people were thinking, you know, I don't have that spiritual gift, so I'm not that important. Or perhaps I'm not like that person. I, I can't teach or preach, so I'm not important or part of the body. And Paul says, you are all members of one body. Paul says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Just think about it. If there was just an eyeball just walking around. Have you ever seen Monsters, Inc. and Mike Wasowski? Right? Just a big eye? That'd be, that'd be weird, right? It'd, it'd be odd. Paul says all parts of the body are necessary. Hands, eyes, ears, feet. Regardless of what body part, you are all important. He continues, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our, and our unpresentable unre, parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There should be no superiority in the body of Christ. We cannot say, we don't need you. You're not important. We actually need one another. And throughout the scripture, you'll see these one another's. How is it that we can love one another, commit ourselves to one another, pray for one another, serve one another, unless we're actually meeting together with one another? Paul says, regardless of what part, we're all important. We tend to sometimes think of us being individuals, we live in an individualistic society, but God is after us corporately as a body being one. It's not just me and Jesus type of mentality, 
but it's Jesus and, and his body, all of us together. And notice that Paul says that God is so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. How can we care for one another if we don't spend time with one another? Paul mentions if one suffers, the whole body suffers. And perhaps you have been suffering for some time now. You don't know where to go or what to do. And there's real pain and sorrow in your heart. Brother, sister, talk to another brother or sister in Christ. We actually need one another. So that when one of us suffers, we can all come together. That we can pray for that person. We can encourage them, point them to Christ, the good shepherd who has laid down his life for them. That's one of the aspects of gathering together. So if you're suffering, don't neglect gathering with God's people. Gather with God's people. And open up your mouth and tell them how you're doing. And you have to remember this, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's so great to remember, right? That we are the body of Christ. And if you have never put your trust in Jesus, Jesus tells you to come. (laughs) Repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ and you too will be a part of the body of Christ. Not because of anything you've done or failed to do, but simply because of his grace. It's important to see here that God is the one who's doing this. Verse 18 says, God arranged the members in the body. Verse 24, God has so composed the body. This is God's doing. How is it that a guy that was born in Trinidad, grew up in Brooklyn on the East Coast, could be here in the Midwest How is it that God could bring people from all over the world to be a part of this church? That's God's doing. (laughs) And it's amazing that he would do that. And so when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we have to remember that it's all for the honor and glory of Christ. And you know what? Guess what? Christ is coming back one day. And when he returns, there's going to be an eternal Sabbath rest for God's people. Where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more coronavirus. It's going to be complete joy. And guess what? Every Sunday that we gather is a glimpse of that heavenly reality. And so we gather together to worship Christ and to encourage and edify one another. And so when you don't feel like gathering with God's people, pray and ask God, God, give me the grace. I need the body of Christ. 
and I need Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're so glorious and amazing and beautiful. God, it's amazing that you have sought to save us through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you that you are faithful and good and true. Father, we thank you so much for Christ, our Redeemer, the one who has shed his blood to forgive and atone for all our sin. I pray now, Lord, as we look to the supper, that we will be reminded of this glorious truth. Strengthen us, nourish us through this meal. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So there are some communion cups in your seats next to you. And did you know that, as I pointed out, one of the images that we see in the scripture is that Christ is the groom and we the church are his bride. And in Revelation 19, it speaks about a feast a wedding supper for the Lamb. That the bride of Christ will partake with the groom, Jesus. And so we look forward to that day, the day that we will be with Christ, that we will enjoy this meal with him in the new heaven and the new earth. So if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. The bread that represents the body of Christ, that on the night he was betrayed, he says, take this, this is my body. Let us eat. And then Jesus takes the cup, saying, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. So all our sins are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. Let's partake. Father, we thank you. You are good. And we thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ. May that motivate us and encourage us today and this week. And we thank you for your love towards us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.